just walked by a house and I saw that the whole house was dark except for this glowing screen. Those are normal, but it still gets me. It's totally normal to us to have glowing screens, to have these glowing images in our houses. And even when we're not using them, people have screensavers, and that's what I'm getting at here. I saw, like, just a little bit of color, what they call a little splash of color on the glowing screen. A little splash of color on the glowing screen. That's a good song. Uh, <laughs> but, uh... You know, I, 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 when I see that, sometimes I just kind of... Like, I don't like to look into people's windows. Although, I do find it really strange that anyone even puts themselves on display. Like, every house I've ever lived in, I've positioned screens. And for that matter, if at all possible, I only spend time where I can't be seen. And if I have to be seen, I never have the screen positioned so that people can see it from the outside. Even if it's totally innocent. You know, I've talked about this before at workplaces. Like, if you work in an office, you don't want anybody to see your screen. It feels really uncomfortable to have your back exposed to people to begin with. But it adds this whole other layer to it when someone can see what's on your screen. Not even because you can't goof off as easily. Not even just because you can't, like, do whatever you want as easily like even if you have a job where you're very busy at a computer and you're not goofing off you still don't want people to look at what's on your screen and it makes you feel violated almost like somebody breaking into your house or something like in the same way that your house becomes an extension of your body and you know it's kind of like if you're on a, if you're using a computer you know you're inhabiting that computer your soul, just like your soul inhabits your body, your soul inhabits your dwelling, your soul inhabits the tool that you're using. And so I think that's part of it. <laughs> you know, a, a normal person would just be like, oh, I just feel uncomfortable when someone's looking at my screen behind me. I'm like, well, it's, it's because it's an extension of your soul. It's an extension of your soul, and that's why you feel violated. I believe that, though. So I don't, I don't really understand people who, when you're just walking down the sidewalk past their house, you can see the screen, or even see them. You can see them and or their screen. But looking at this one, I looked at it for a second, you know, because what I was going to say is like, I don't spy on people. Like, I try not to see too much when I walk by someone's house. But if I see a screen, I do, I want to know what they're watching. There's just something about, I don't know if it's perverse, but it's like, I want to know what that person who's just sitting inside their house oblivious is watching. And it often looks so boring. Every time I see what's on a screen, it's like, I'll see, it's like some show I don't recognize. I'm just like, yeah, that looks really fucking boring. And uh, then, uh, like I'll see, you know, you'll see like video games and stuff as well. That's the one that always gets me. Like, you'll see somebody playing a video game, some new video game. But this one, I looked at it for a second to see if it moved, because I just saw what looked like artwork. And then I noticed that it wasn't changing or moving, and I was like, oh, it's like a screensaver. Because TVs are just computers now. Just like phones are computers, TVs are computers. So when someone has one of those wall-mounted flat-screen TVs, which is what this was, if you're not using it, it just shows an image. It just shows a screensaver. And I could tell that the screensaver was a zoomed-in image of that. Is it the Sistine Channel, Chapel? <laughs> Sistine Channel? It's, 
unintentional TV pun, uh, but uh, the Sistine Chapel, is that the one that has, I don't even know who it is, you know, we all know the image, but it's like, it's some sort of divine holy painting where it's got the guy reaching out and touch, like with his finger and touching the other guy's hand, and it's always parodied. At this point, you see the parodies of it more often than anything else. And uh, it was a very zoomed-in image of uh, that guy's hand, of the, of the pointing finger touching the hand. And, and it got me thinking, I was like, oh, the, like my first thought when I realized that's what it was, which I've seen that before, you know, I've seen where people like, like that zoomed-in image of the finger touching the hand. But my first thought was like, oh, they must love that painting. And then I, my second thought was, you know what, that could just be like a pre-loaded screensaver. Like that's one of the things that comes pre-loaded, I bet, you know, with your TV or your computer. Like you know how your, your computer would come with these pre-loaded screensavers where it's, and like desktop backgrounds, where it's like a, like a beautiful rolling green hill or you know, some sort of other scenic picture. That's probably what this thing is like. Your TV probably comes with preloaded screensavers you can select, and one of them is that divine painting that everybody knows. But that's good. It's, I don't know. That amused me. That just kind of amused me a little bit because I was like, that's funny. Like, you see that on someone's TV, and like, this image is displayed in their house all the time. Like, every time these people aren't watching TV, they have an image of that painting on their computer or on their, their TV. But they might not even care about that painting. Like that might have just been like the better option compared to the other shit. Like, and, and so it's kind of funny that it, you know, it either means they love that thing or like they might not at all and it was just totally random. So it's kind of funny. That like, you know, this thing, this image you display all the time. because. You know, I've done that with uh, computers where it's like, yeah, as, as fun as it is to, like, customize your background and all that, like, it also takes work. And, like, you know, once you own a certain number of computers, you just kind of take on the mindset, like, I'm going to get another one in a few years. I don't even look at the desktop background, you know, I don't even think about that stuff. Like, I think that's what it's been like for me, where I, I just like over the years, I'm just like, I don't even care. I'm just going to use the preloaded stuff. But yet it's this thing you see every time you use it. Just like these people have this painting displayed in their house all the time. And that doesn't even tell you whether they like it or not. It could just be something totally arbitrary and they're like, sure, I'll just use that one. I don't care enough. Those things become institutions where, uh, you know, there's kids, like, like if a kid grew up in that house, they'd see that every day and they must, they'd be like, that's an institution. Like that's, that, that forms part of the kid's consciousness. Cause you know, I've talked about that before where it's like in the, the house I grew up in, there was what we called the playhouse, which was this little building. I think it, I don't know if it had been a shed or something originally, but my dad had built it up into this cool kind of little two-story thing with a ladder going between the bottom story and the top story, very small. Just like this very small, very vertical little building behind our house. 
And I guess he, he and like his cousin built it for my sister, I guess. But by the time I was of age, it was just kind of this cool little, almost like a guest house, like almost like an air, you know, this day and age, you would use it as an Airbnb or something. But uh, behind the playhouse, there was like this little area where just, I guess my mom or whoever was working on the yard would stash stuff there. But there was this stack of bricks. It was like this big, giant stack of bricks that had obviously gone unused for some construction project or something we had done. And it was a big, a pretty big sack. Like, kind of like a big uh, brick, not a pyramid, but a, like a ziggurat, like a temple, a monument. And so it was just this like pretty tall, like I mean, I'd say the thing was like at least four feet high. And my entire childhood, like I would sometimes go back there and it was this mysterious place because it was like this little corner nook where the fence, you know, the, the two sides of the fence joined together in a corner back there. It was kind of shaded. And the neighbor's garage was like built into the fence so it formed kind of a wall. So it was very secluded back there. Like the first time I ever tried one of my mom's cigarettes, I think the only time I did as a kid, I took it back there. I was like, oh, if I smoke it back there, it made me sick. It really made me sick, but I was a kid. But I, I went back there to do it. But it was very mysterious back there. And then you had this giant pile of bricks. And it wasn't just a pile. It was like uniform. It was like this monument of brick. And going back there, it just seemed like, oh, yeah, that was meant to be there. The big stack of bricks was it's, it's like an institution in my backyard but then when you get older like if you ever think about this shit again but i do i'm like oh yeah that that was just put there like they had some leftover bricks from something they did to the yard or house my parents had some kind of project where they they used brick and they had a bunch of leftover brick and we're like well we might as well save that and then 10 years later it's still there and i it's been part of my life forever like, my entire life, there's this stack of bricks. And you know, Danzig had a stack of bricks. Some people... People went by his house and took pictures, or they found his house on Google Earth. And he had this a very similar big pile of bricks. So me and Danzig are the same. My family's like Danzig. But it's probably the same thing. He probably had a project, leftover brick. You don't want to get rid of brick. Brick's cool. Because I thought the, the, the pile of bricks behind the playhouse was really cool. That was the thing, too, is I was like, it's kind of cool just to have this. But yeah, when you grow up around that, you're just like, oh yeah, this is just the way it is. That pile of bricks is meant to be there. That's an institution. And then you realize, no, it was just some arbitrary thing my parents did. And they never got around to moving the bricks or doing something with them. It's, that's what it's like if you grew up in a house where there's a, a, a screensaver of a biblical painting, of a divine painting, you're going to be like, oh yeah, that painting. My parents must have loved that. That's an institution. Every day when I came home from, home from school, I would see the, the flat screen TV with the painting on it. But the reality is your parents might have just gotten that screen, or gotten that TV and been like, oh yeah, we're just going to use the default screensaver which is some painting that's so common it's almost generic. We just don't care. That's fine. Meanwhile, you grew up seeing it every day.
Tons of things like that. It's not that I think everything is random and by chance, but some things certainly are. And what's really interesting is that things that happen randomly or by chance become traditions. They become ritualistic. I mean, a good example of that is... I've known people like this, and I even think about this a little bit in my own way. But, you know, football fans are very superstitious. And it's often joked about, but it's true. Like, I met a guy who was a bartender here in town. And when the Seahawks won the Super Bowl in the early 2010s, I guess he, that day he had, uh, he had cooked chicken in this very specific way. He had prepared a very specific meal, but it was random. It was just the Seahawks were in the Super Bowl, but it's not like he had any magical intent when he was cooking that day. It was just like, oh, this would be a good set of things to eat. This would be a good spread. This would be a good spread for the Super Bowl. The Seahawks ended up winning huge, a huge win. Seahawks fans like me, we were just elated for years. But they were in the Super Bowl again the next year, and they lost, of course. But I remember, like, here, like that, I was hanging out at the bar, and the bartender was talking about it, and he's like, yeah, Sunday, with the second Seahawks Super Bowl back-to-back, he's like, yeah, Sunday, I have it all ready. Like, I'm going to make the chicken exactly the same way I made it last year. I'm going to have everything laid out the exact same way. It had become a ritual. He was like, oh, I, I, I have to cook that way, or the Seahawks are going to lose. For the Seahawks to win, I have to cook in this very specific way and arrange it in this ritualistic manner and have the same exact food. Crazy, but we all, we do that. And I do that too. Like, I'm just, I'm trying to think like, I mean, everybody, the most common version of that, that every Seahawks fan does is they have Blue Friday, where the Friday before a Seahawks game, you wear Seahawks gear or the color blue. And everybody who's a fan does it. And the idea, like, and you know, I've had days where I don't realize it's Blue Friday. Like, I'm just going about my life. And I don't wake up and think, oh, it's Blue Friday. I better wear Seahawks stuff. You know, I I don't wake up and do that. And then later in the day, I go, oh, shit. It's Blue Friday. And when I realize that I haven't participated in Blue Friday, I'm like, they're going to lose. Like, you start to feel like you failed them. Like, you didn't participate in the ritual, and now it's not going to work. That's kind of how you feel. You could tell that's how this bartender felt when he was talking about, like, cooking the food. He was like, oh, last year they won because of this food. You know, in order for them to win this time, I really have to do the same exact thing. Like, he believes somehow that contributes to it, and we all do that. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's like a tribe who... Is experiencing a drought and they do a rain dance and it rains well guess what they're gonna do next time they have a drought next time they have a drought they're probably gonna do a rain dance and this ritual is gonna form where like now we have to do the rain dance at the start of every season to water our crops and it can happen just immediately quickly And I think part of what that is, I mean, I think there is a very spiritual component to that. And there is something magical to it. But you can break it down on this materialistic level and say, part of that is that, like, if something good happens, 
and you were doing something at that time, good th that good thing must happen when you're doing that thing. You know, you have a tendency to take that correlation and turn it into causation. And, uh, you know, people would say that's like non-scientific, this or that. I don't know. I think there's something to thinking that way. I wouldn't be able to tell you what it is. But something draws us into that way of thinking. And going through those motions, like even if it is just, even if science debunks all that crap, you know, there's something about even just going through the motions of it. It does something for you. It engages you in a way that you otherwise wouldn't be engaged. And, uh, like, you feel like a participant. You're not just experiencing a drought by doing this activity that you think can invite the rain back. You're participating rather than just sitting around saying, like, gee, I wish the weather patterns would change so that we get some rain and, and it saves our crops. So, you know, instead of like thinking that way, like, oh, this is all random, and I hope that the chaos leans our way a little bit. I hope the chaos helps us a little bit. But when you have these rituals, it's kind of a way of saying, okay, it's not just all up to chaos. We're also going to do our thing to engage with this, to participate. The guy cooking the wings or chicken thinking it would help the Seahawks win. You know, he's not just going to sit there and watch the game. He's, he's kind of, he's, he's, he's participating spiritually. And if he feels that he's participating, I don't think anybody can say he's not. Because I, I do things like that myself. I have plenty of them. You know, I've learned over the years that I'm actually a very superstitious person in my own ways. Because I grew up thinking that superstition meant you do the, the cliche superstitions that you always hear about. Like I grew up th kind of thinking that you, in order to be superstitious, you had to care about walking under ladders and black cats and throwing salt and pepper over your shoulder, whatever the fuck that is. You know, I used to think that it was like, oh, if you're superstitious, you do those things. Or your OCD in this textbook, almost caricature sort of way. It wasn't until I was older that it was actually my neighbor at my last house. One of the dudes, they were just fascinated by me, these college kids. I'm not, I'm not saying that, I'm not being egotistical. It was just like they, they just watched me. I don't know, I, thought, I, I don't know if they thought great of me. I'm not saying they even liked me. I just think they, they spent a lot of time watching me, I figured out. Because one time I was leaving and the guy, he was always nice to me. I didn't really know him well, but he was a young dude. He's like, hey dude. They, they were nice, but he's like, I couldn't help but notice you're not, he's like, I don't want to say you're... Uh, like OCD but he's like I think you seem superstitious like I watch you leave and I liked his honesty being like I watch you leave there was nothing weird about the way he said it it's just like he looks out the window when I'm leaving my house and I was like okay I guess I guess I kind of understand because I mean one thing that I always did when I left my house is like I'd walk out my side door that I came in and out of I'd probably close the door in the same way you know just muscle memory you're going to close it. Like, you know the mechanics of your door and how to close it. And eventually you just start doing it in, like, one fluid motion. And so I would do that. Like, I would, I would like, you know, pull my keys out, lock the door, do what everybody does. But then I would always check the handle. Like, there were little mannerisms I would do that I just developed from doing it so much. 
coming and going all the time. But he noticed it, and like he saw it as kind of a superstitious thing. Like, he apparently thought the way I left my house was superstitious. And that actually got me thinking, where I was like, you know what? I actually am superstitious. It's just not that, I, I just don't follow these, like, old wives' tale superstitions. Because it turns out, those are just random. Those are just random ones. Like, the thing that makes people superstitious can actually turn anything into a superstition. Just like any random thing can become an institution, like a pile of bricks that your family just leaves there after a construction project, like that can become an institution of your childhood, of your environment. And so the, the same is true for the superstitions you develop where, like if you do something, it could be something totally arbitrary. That dude cooked chicken wings. He could just as well have cooked pizza on the Super Bowl. He could have cooked pizza, he could have made pasta. But he made wings or he made chicken. And because the Seahawks won, and he felt high and you know, he felt just elated, he felt this rush of, of just excitement. He like associated in his mind cooking chicken with winning and felt like he was participating. And then the next year, it had already developed into a ritual superstition. But it could have been anything. You know, it could have been pizza. But the point is, is that there's a need for that superstition. Something pulled him into that way of thinking really quickly. And, you, you know, again, not to be too materialist about this, but having a, a dog for the first time in my life, I've seen it with Batty. I've seen it with dogs where if you can communicate to Batty that... Uh, him doing something results in a certain thing. He will do that again. And he, and usually after the second time. If you have him do something once, he'll do it. But the next time you want him to do it, he might not do it. He might not do it right away. And then when you show him to do that again, and he gets the same result, by the third time he knows. And the good side of that is, well, you can train him to do things you want that way. The bad side of it is, he also learns. Um, he also learns that certain things get certain results that he doesn't want, and after that happens a couple times, he starts learning how to avoid it. It happened recently with something where, uh, oh, I know what it was when when his friend, the deaf dog Lola, was staying over. He's very, very territorial about food. Like, he loves her, he loves Lola, but he's very territorial, and anything involving food, he gets very feisty, like the competition for food. And she's just kind of this happy-go-lucky dog that'll eat anything, but Batty's very specific. He's very particular about how he eats and, you know, what he eats. And so he was being just really kind of mean about the food. And so I was putting him in another room to eat, I would pick him up, put him in another room with the door closed so that they could both eat separately. But after about, after two times, I did that two times, and then he anticipated, because dogs are kind of psychic, they're, they're incredibly intuitive, and sometimes they know what you're going to do before you do it. But I, you know, so that was true in this case, where it's like he, he sensed that I was going to put him, because he didn't like that, he didn't like being locked in a room to eat. 
and and so he but he sensed that I was going to do that again you know he got a sense that oh that happened twice Eric's going to put me in that room again I don't want to do that so he, he was running away from me and hiding and so, so as much as it's good you can train positive behavior when they don't like something they learn a couple times too but it does play into almost superstition where you can train a dog to be superstitious I don't do that I don't think I've trained Batty to be superstitious but you could because what you make them do is arbitrary a good example of that is something like making your dog shake hands the oldest trick in the book the oldest trick in the book trick in the book training your dog to shake hands and giving them a treat there is no function to that there there is no uh, you know that doesn't that doesn't cause a treat to fall out of the sky but yet you can make your dog think that hey if I shake hands with my owner I get a treat and they they notice the correlation and in some way they don't really I think the the amazing thing about dogs is I don't think they care about the correlation versus the causation they simply know that when I do this I get that thing it doesn't matter if I'm causing that thing to appear or whether it's just a coincidence but I've learned that when I shake hands I get that treat and you could go out from there you know you could do it in any number of ways you could train your dog to be superstitious where doing seemingly random things but every time they do that thing something happens you can definitely train a dog to think that way but uh I don't know, I've realized, yeah, I, I have a bunch of little superstitions, and I, I don't even realize I'm doing them. And I've learned, I think, you know, I think I talked about this on here, like when my mom died, where that kind of wiped all the superstitions clean. I was in such an otherworldly state that I, I remember actually having the thought, oh yeah, all of those little superstitions I have, I don't, I, I don't feel anything about them. I almost feel like I've beaten them. But then sure enough, like once that situation started to settle, I was like, oh no, they're all still there. And I'm still gonna do them. And the reason why I know I don't have, you know, full-blown OCD or anything is because I'm willing to break those little rules that I have. I'm more than willing to break them. I don't like to, but I like to rebel against myself. That's something I talk about on here, like the need to rebel against yourself not getting too stuck in the same pattern or not thinking you really know yourself. So you have to be your own devil's advocate. And uh, superstition plays into that because it's like, I, I'm like, okay, you know, I want to touch this a certain number of times. Or that object in my house goes here and i'm not talking about the knife drawer or the, the plate cupboard things that don't necessarily have a set place i've kind of developed a set place for them and the way those things feel to me like one it's for convenience like if it's something i use i always put those things back in the same place because i want to know where they are if you always put something back in the same place you're not looking for your keys you're not looking for a, a pen and so part of it's that, part of it's functional. 
But there is also something about it that feels almost like these things snap into place, like Legos, the way Legos snap together. When I put those things in what have become their place, like an institution, like say where I put pens on the kitchen counter, or where I keep my cell phone when I'm not using it. When I put those things there, in those places where I always put them, it almost feels like it's snapping in place like a Lego. Like something feels like it's meant to go there, and if it's not there, it feels weird. But I think you have to rebel against that impulse. I think like, you know, I do that just for practical reasons above all else, but it's like that thing that tells you you have to do it. Or that in order to get the good result, you have to do that. Sometimes going against the grain is the thing that gives you the breakthrough. And going against your own grain, especially. Because if you don't go against your own grain, you know, you really don't know what you're all about at all. You know, I've talked uh, before about how, like, just when you think, oh, I've changed, I've changed for the better. Some gloomy part of your personality that you thought was gone suddenly emerges and takes control. It's like trying to outwit the devil. And as Alan Watts said, you know, when you try to, <laughs> you know, when you, when you announce your intentions, you let the devil know your plans. And he said, and who do you think the devil is? It's you. <laughs> and that's like a Napoleon Hill sort of idea. Like he, that book... There was that book that was released posthumously by Napoleon Hill, Outwitting the Devil, which was essentially his inner monologue, but it was him in conversation with the devil. And it plays into the Alan Watts idea of, you know, letting the devil know your plans. And who do you think the devil is? It's you. Like, you're, your, you're the devil. You're your own enemy in that situation who will get in the way of your own plans by telegraphing them too much. But, uh, you know, and that's kind of, it plays into when you start thinking like, oh, I've changed, I've improved, I've, evol I've evolved. That's something that we tell each other a lot through life. It's like, oh, I've evolved, I've learned, I'm wiser now. And we do get wiser, you know, it's not that we, that doesn't happen. But the second you become too confident in your change or your wisdom, that's, well, that's, it's like telling the devil, you know, hey, Look at me. Come do come interfere with me. You know, come come uh come put me to the test. And that's when that thing that you thought was gone comes back. Whatever that sentiment is, whatever that feeling is, that's when it comes back many times. And uh one way though that you keep yourself in check and you know, come to find out, you know, the ways that you really have changed or evolved is to go against yourself. Not in a way that's, you know, self-hating or not in a way that's going to make you miserable. But just in a way, like, like look at yourself under a harsh light. Take something that, that is kind of an institution in your own mind, because we all have those. We all have some kind of idea about something, and we formed that idea a long time ago for some arbitrary reason. We had some reason to associate that idea with something bad or good. And then that kind of becomes an institution. Like the way that we think about that idea is set in stone. 
And so one way of kind of going against your own grain and playing devil's advocate is to be like, okay, I have that in my head somewhere. I have that in my head that that thing is a certain way or that that idea is a certain way. Well, let me go against that. Like, let me, uh, let me see if that's really how I feel at this point. And I've had to do that with many things. And what you realize is that oftentimes you go, okay, you know, my idea about that, I think I was right. You know, maybe I'll revisit it in the future. But yeah, I think that thing sucks or that thing's good. I think that's the right, right way to see it. The way I saw it is the right way to see it. But other times you realize, oh, okay, you know, I don't know. I think I had the wrong idea about that. Or I, you know, or maybe or you start thinking like, maybe I have changed. I am different than I was at that point. But then you don't know if you're just going to snap back. You know, you don't know if you're going to snap back into that. Snap, you're going to snap between different ways of being. Um, we're out here in the weeds. I'm going to kind of try to walk, walk it back a little bit. But uh, I guess just where that idea is going is, you know, how it's like just random thoughts and experiences become institutions in your head, just like a pile of bricks, just like a screensaver on your flat screen TV. These things, like you just, you don't do anything about them. They're there and you see them continually and you almost start thinking that's the way it's supposed to be which it might not be. As much as I believe in fate and things like that, I know that along with fate, there's also just a lot of chaotic, random stuff that happens and it just sticks to us. And even if we know that it's stuck to us, we just kind of go, hmm, I'm not really gonna do anything about that right now. And then 10 years goes by and you're like, oh yeah, that thing's been stuck to me for 10 years. And I've started to just treat it like it's a part of me. Maybe I should take another look at that or, you know, see if it's something I do want to keep or something I want to pull off of me. What the heck is it? What is it? Like an octopus sticking to me? I don't know. But that's what you have to do. And that's how you figure out, you know, what you actually feel. Like anyone who's too dead set in how they are, you know, they really need to rebel against themselves a little bit. And that's what's missing. Because I think when people do that, they're afraid that... I think they're afraid that they're going to lose everything that's meaningful to them. They feel like if they go against their own grain, they're going to have nothing left. Or they might become what they hate. But really, you know, it puts your thinking to the test. It puts who you are to the test. And you're probably going to be more sure of yourself. It's... I mean, there's all kinds of cliches about that. Like, give something away, and if it comes back to you, it was meant to be. But, you know, going against your own grain just means, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try to look at this objectively, because that's what that is. It's not even, you know, it doesn't have to be like a scathing personal review. It's just kind of like, I'm going to try to be as objective as I can. I'm going to try to be as objective as I can about myself, the way I think, the things I believe, the things that have become institutions in my own life. Because you can go into someone's house and you wouldn't even know which things are institutions. And you see this with hoarders. I've mentioned this with hoarders before. 
because garbage becomes institutions. Crap become becomes institutionalized in a hoarder's home. And I know that because it's like I know how I, I know my tendencies. You know, I have a hoarder in my family. And they're, they're a not a filthy hoarder, like not a gross hoarder with like garbage and food, but just they save things. They save everything. And I can feel the roots of that pulling at me sometimes, but fortunately I don't have it. I just know that it's there. And I can see that when I'm just like going about my daily routines, because that's where this that's how these institutions are formed, it's through routine. And some of you'll just like put stuff there. Like there was some I think I had like put like a stack of cardboard boxes somewhere. Just a random place. I was like, that's a good place for them right now. I'll find a better place later. And then every time I got an empty cardboard box, I would just put it there. And next thing I know, I, I have this structure of cardboard boxes, and this has become the place for them, and it's unsightly. It's not a good use of space. But my mind now thinks that's where they go. That's where they're meant to go. When I could just as well move them to another part of the house, start stacking them there, and that's going to become the new institution. But it's totally random and arbitrary. There's nothing about that spot that I had them in that makes that the the fated place for cardboard in my home. But that's how garbage hoarders operate too, because what they'll do is their trash will be full and they'll just like put it put an empty chip bag in the corner of the kitchen. And be like, oh when I, when I take the trash out, like I'll just put that in the new bag or I'll take it out too. But they don't take the trash out right away because, you know, hoarding develops through just severe procrastination. Oh, I'll, I'll get rid of that soon. I'll do that soon. That's what a hoarder says. I'll take care of that soon. But then, like, you know, they, they end up not taking the trash out. They eat another bag of chips. They get some takeout. And they're like, okay, well, I'm just going to put it where that chip bag was. The stuff that I'm going to get to later when I take the trash out. But pretty soon, you know, they're just putting trash on the ground and they're probably putting it in the same place, you know, they're probably, you know, putting it like in that spot and it's just growing outward from there. And what I'm thinking of here are those hoarding houses that you see. I've never known anybody like this, but like the hoarding houses you see uh, in documentaries where you go, they go into the kitchen and it's truly just like mounds of garbage. It looks like a city dump. That's what I'm thinking of here. Like, because you always wonder, like, how does that develop? Like, how does it get that bad? And I think it starts because, like, a corner of the kitchen becomes like, oh, I'm going to put some extra garbage here just for the time being. That becomes an, you know, an institutionalized pile of garbage in your kitchen. Now you have an entire kitchen full of garbage. Now you have an entire. I mean, this happened at my last house. I did. About like six months to a year before I moved out, I did some spring cleaning, and I hadn't done that for years. And that house, it was small, and I was orderly, and I was clean. But I started to develop just these institutions around the house, and it was a small house. Like, for example, I had been buying coffee table books for a while. I, would, I went through this period where I would go to the thrift store, I would get really stoned and go to the thrift store, and I would just look for cool old coffee table books. Like, not generic bullshit, but just, like, looking for, like, treasures and stuff like that. And, uh, 
like I would buy them. Like sometimes they would be like collections of old comics, newspaper comics, just anything. And I started putting them on my coffee table. You know, I just started like putting a stack of them on a coffee table. And next thing I knew, that stack of books was just way too high. It was just like this massive stack of books on my coffee table, and I didn't even think about it. And then it became two piles, where my coffee table had just these two huge uh, piles of books that I was, I was never going to read most of them either. I'd bought them on a whim, and I was never going to read them. And, uh, the, and then when I was doing the spring cleaning, though, I was like, I got to get rid of those. I'm never going to read those. Like, that's, that's turned into this weird institution, and it takes up space, and there's no reason for it. But I just stack books there now. And I opened up this closet. It was a closet that had a curtain on it. And I, you know, I opened up the curtain, and I realized that I hadn't looked in this closet for probably like two years. And I'd been living there for about seven and a half years, seven years. And I just noticed that it was just filled with boxes, like appliance boxes, like vacuum, like two two vacuum boxes, a four-track box, just any kind of appliance or, you know, electronic device. I realized what I'd been doing unconsciously is that when I would buy something new like that, I would just take the box and just throw it in that closet. It was a pretty big closet. I wouldn't stack them. I would just throw boxes. And I couldn't believe how many boxes were in there. I was like, holy shit, like this has just become the box closet and I didn't even plan it. It just became where I throw boxes, which is the name of my the monument. It's a, a Native American monument and it's, uh, it's called, this is where we throw boxes. No, but that's how things develop. That's how these things become institutionalized. And if you're not careful, you become almost superstitious about it. Like, no, things have to go there. But fortunately, I don't have superstitions about that. Like, I'm cool. Like, if I find a better way to organize something or where to put it, I don't feel anything about changing it. It's just making the effort to change it that's hard. Even though it'll take you five seconds. Like, with the box closet, it'll take you five seconds to just take the boxes out, put them somewhere else. But it's having the motivation or the desire to change that that's, that's hard to get. And I realized that with people who have lived in the same place for a really, really long time. I think my childhood home was that way. You know, my parents had lived there since the 70s. And we moved out in the early 2000s. So we had lived in this house for you know longer than I was alive. And a lot of stuff was there. It wasn't just the pile of bricks, but there was a lot of stuff in the house. Like, my mom was tidy, but I realized, like, a lot of the things that I just took for granted were just random things that my family did at one point, and then it became normal for it to be there. It was like, oh, yeah, that's where the Lego fits. That's where the Lego's meant to snap in. But in actuality, no, this was just, you know, some random shit my family put in a corner and then decided that's where it goes. And uh, trying not to get hit here. Trying not to get hit. But yeah, it's funny though how it's like there's something about us though that like it's not just that we develop superstitions over time because like when you think about rituals and entire groups or nations of people who have rituals, which we all do. 
there's national rituals. There's things that we just collectively decide we have to do. And even if we don't think it'll get a result anymore, like we still have to go through the motions of it. But like you think about that stuff and it's you like I used to think about that stuff and be like, oh, you know, these superstitions and these rituals and these traditions. That's kind of what a tradition is. It's it's kind of a like a a good superstition in a weird way. And uh but you know it's it's uh what was I gonna say about that? Well, I had a thought there. It was a good thought. Traditions. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm just floating around this general topic. Um, but I guess like I was saying, like you, you can get disconnected from what's even supposed to happen, but you keep doing the ritual. Oh, I, I remember what I was saying. I used to think that uh, that was something that had to happen over generations. Like three, four, five generations. Like, like your family had to live in the same place and do the same thing. Basically be part of the same tribe or community for generations for collective superstitions to form. And for you to participate in these group rituals and traditions. I used to think that was something that took a very long time to develop. I've realized that's not the case at all and these things can happen instantly. You know, just like that bartender that I, I knew who suddenly developed a ritual and a superstition about chicken and the Seahawks winning. Like, it, all it took is one Super Bowl, one just huge, major, exciting event. Because I think that's a big part of it. It's not like when the Seahawks just win a game during the regular season, even if it's an important game, if they just win a random game and he cooks chicken... He's not necessarily going to go, oh, I got to cook that chicken again. But I think it was the fact that the Seahawks just, they won the Super Bowl for the first time, you know, ever. And uh, it was just such a, an ecstatic event. It was like, it was this feeling of ecstasy, honestly. I, w I got blackout drunk that night. And, I, but I was calling people, I was drunk dialing. I was writing things on Facebook. It was, I was ecstatic. This guy obviously was too. And all it took was like some sort of ecstatic outcome, like your beloved hometown Super Bowl or your, your beloved hometown NFL team winning the Super Bowl to like ritualize what happened and to turn it into not just a tradition, but a superstition where you have to do this thing in this very specific way to get that ecstatic result again. And even if you didn't, like, even if you didn't do that thing and still got the result, there's something in you that tells you you have to do it anyway. It's become institutionalized. And like with that guy, it became institutionalized overnight. He had this new superstitious institution in his life. I wonder if he thought, I wonder if this, I wonder if this is the, the phrasing he uses when he talks about it. He's just like, no, I got to cook the chicken. He doesn't even think about this crap. He's just like, I gotta cook the chicken, dude. But, uh, you know, that's that's been eye-opening to me because I think the last few years in particular, we've been able to see how quickly these things take hold on a widespread social level. You know, it's probably something that everybody notices when they get old enough. You know, but a lot of people, they just age, they've seen enough happen, they've seen the patterns. And they kind of go, oh yeah, you know, things are changing 
and society is ap- adapting new traditions, new superstitions. I think we just inevitably do that. And so if you live long enough, you'll see society take on entirely new traditions and superstitions. But I don't think historically that happened that quickly. You know, we weren't as we weren't as exposed to each other. We weren't as exposed to the world. We weren't as overexposed in every possible way to information, to everything. So while I think like our, our traditions have obviously changed, our superstitions have obviously changed over the years as an entire as a community, as a country, at every level, personally. But I think it was a slower, more gradual, subliminal process. And what we're seeing now in the age of the internet, and especially over the last decade, with rapid acceleration the last few years, is that large groups of people will take on new rituals, new traditions, new superstitions, as quickly as that guy, you know, started thinking that chicken was... A necessary ritual for his team winning the Super Bowl. They'll take it on just as quickly. If it brings out that ecstatic feeling. And it might not be a good ecstasy. That's the thing. Like something like spiritual rapture is beyond pleasure. Like if you've even gotten a taste of spiritual rapture in your life, you can't really say it's pleasurable. You know, people will describe it as blissful. But, I mean, that's kind of a bastardization of it, too. Like the whole follow-your-bliss Western Buddhist philosophy. I think the only way that it comprehends bliss is, like, through pleasure and, like, self-affirmation, which to me is not what it is. It's almost beyond any feeling of pleasure. It's almost beyond good and bad. Ecstasy true like spiritual rapture ecstasy so I think you can my what I'm getting at here is I don't think it's just good and beautiful things that you like that bring that out of you you know some people describe having spiritual rapture listening to certain songs or music and I know that very well myself I've experienced that myself but this is different than that And what I'm talking about here is I think bad things or things like I think a good example of this is, you know, what happened summer 2020 where people observed and I observed this myself that what was going on during summer 2020 had taken on a religious cult like atmosphere, even though it involved huge groups of people and was mainstream. Just because it's mainstream doesn't mean this isn't happening. Where people develop new icons, they were actually participating in rituals. They became very focused on symbols, mantras. And I think that, you know, the whole, you know, George Floyd um, BLM thing, I think it did bring a state of ecstasy or rapture out of those people, like the people who were outraged. Like these people were expressing a lot of anger. They were expressing, you know, a lot of disgust. They were rioting. 
but I think they were in a state of ecstasy while they were doing it, because I don't see ecstasy as a state that depends on positive emotions. I think you can experience ecstasy any number of ways. It's like the whirling dervishes. It's like the whirling dervishes spin around so much that they enter a state of spiritual ecstasy. Well, that's, that's something that you wouldn't necessarily think is good, like spinning around, like making yourself dizzy. You wouldn't necessarily be like, well, spinning around is awesome. Spinning around is, is amazing. It's amazing. You wouldn't necessarily think that because, you know, it might not be. But, uh, you know, they do it and they reach this state of rapture. And, uh, but it's just, it's something that they found out that could make them do that. Other people have other ways. Some people just sitting there. You know, for some people, it's meditation. Like, so those two different things can put somebody in that state of spiritual rapture. Sitting down with your legs crossed, trying to think of nothing. But you can reach the same state of mind, and, it, you know, you can reach something similar. You can participate in, in some way that's at least a little bit analogous by spinning around nonstop. You can also experience it when you see something beautiful, but I think you can also experience it when you're faced with some kind of severe tragedy or something that you hate. I think all of that stuff can put you in a, a state of ecstasy too. Because, you know, with summer 2020 and all that, you know, as outraged as people were, as disgusted as they were, you got the sense that they were enjoying this. I don't want to say it was sexual. I'm not, I'm not going to get do some stupid Freudian thing here. But it's but it was almost like akin to that, like in the same way that like there's a sexual ecstasy. It's almost like people were experiencing something similar to that, and it wasn't rooted in like feeling good or positivity because there was very little that was positive about the whole thing. But they, nonetheless, were in a state of ecstasy or rapture, and I think that's why symbolism and mantras, iconography cult-like thinking I think that's why that was so attractive to them because when you when something goes from being just an idea to like an institution and a superstition and something that you participate in, in ritualistically you it's very easy to like start thinking in a cult-like way about it and to be to get really serious about it even if it was totally arbitrary and random like, you could see this just with, like, uh, you know, the portraits of George Floyd that people put around. Like, that image, which I think was a selfie. It was a random selfie this guy happened to take of himself that became probably the first image people saw of him. It became the most widely spread image. But it was just a random, low-quality selfie this guy had taken of himself. And people immediately turned it into religious artwork. And it started to appear everywhere. I mean, it's in town here. There's portraits of him here where I live. I, I regularly... There was one in Afghanistan, which was bizarre. When they, when the U.S. got kicked out of Afghanistan, when we ran out of Afghanistan, I think this is true. I don't think this was some bullshit. They had a big portrait of him in Afghanistan while we were there. And when we left, they showed them taking it down. And it was just so surreal. It's like we, we even put that in our colony. You know, we had like attempted to kind of colonize Afghanistan. Not colonize, but 
you know, our empire had stationed ourselves there. And that became one of the symbols of our empire to a certain group of people. But it, it was very random. This guy, this one guy happened to, you know, die in this way. And it became one of the, the, the biggest movements I've ever seen in my life. And this random selfie of this guy who, you know, I think you could say randomly died. I mean, it's like, I don't, I don't know, you know, again, like I, I do have some sense of fate. I do believe in fate to some degree. But for all, you know, for, you know, for our purposes, it's like he was one man who happened to die at a very specific time in a very specific way that brought a very specific reaction. But it's not like it was preordained. And so he was a random guy who had a random selfie of himself that was turned into a religious icon. And surrounding that icon were all kinds of other behaviors, all kinds of other new institutions, and a lot of cult-like thinking. And a good sign of that cult-like thinking is always when you're encouraged to break relationships. I think that's one of the core differences between a religion and a cult, is that there's some religions that say that tell you not to uh, recruit. There are some anti-missionary religions. But even with that, like most religions welcome new members. And even if they can't convert you, they encourage you to be open and, and uh, engage with those people to try to bring them in. Like, like they're, they're more about openness. It doesn't always work out that way, and many of the same problems play out even in you know, mainstream religion that you see in cults. But there is more of a, like, come, join us thing. And cults have that too, but the difference is, is they, will, they will encourage you to cut ties with anybody who doesn't believe exactly what you now believe. If your family won't join the cult, if your friends won't join the cult, cults say, yeah, well, they ha they're against us. They've been possessed. Don't talk to them. Don't cut them out of your life. And that was a big talking point during summer 2020. A lot of young liberal girls were starting to say things like, you know, if your dad still hasn't apologized for, you know, saying that bad thing 20 years ago, don't go to Thanksgiving. Don't talk to him. Sit down with your parents and tell them about this cause. And if they don't immediately go along with it, cut them out of your life. It was, and, and you know, it's hard to say where that even came from, but I think it comes from some place deep down where the idea is like, if somebody doesn't go along with this program, like, like this is how we save the world. This is how we save our souls. And anybody who doesn't want to save our souls in this very specific way is against us saving our souls in that way. And therefore, you should have nothing to do with them. That's kind of the cult mindset. And it's a, it's a very easy way to recognize a cult versus just a religion. Is cults generally encourage you to cut all ties with everyone who's not walking strip, strictly in line with the cult. Whereas religions are a little more like, oh, hey, like, they're more about increasing the quantity rather than building diehard adherence. You know, religious extremists 
that's cults, you know, that's cultish. But most mainstream religions, no matter how fervent they are, they don't discourage cutting all ties with everybody in that way. That's what you saw in summer 2020. So very cult-like behavior, you know, very, things had become very religious to them. And it's because I think they were in a state of ecstasy. And if you can spin around in circles, if you can be a whirling dervish and reach spiritual ecstasy that way, I think you can be so angry that you reach spiritual ecstasy. I think sometimes that's what anger does to you. Like when you talk about somebody blacking out. Like when, when somebody blacks out through anger and does something they regret. It's almost like they they've, it's almost like they've entered a negative spiritual ecstasy. And so I think like outrage and disgust and all those emotions that people were feeling two years ago, I, th I think that those did kind of bring about an ecstatic state. And then everything else just kind of fell into place around that. Something got ritualized. Something got in various things in that got ritualized. And while it's, you know, subsided a little bit, I'll never forget it. I'll never forget that that happened. And it was a lesson that these things can happen very quickly. Even though there had been something brewing, like something had been building underneath that, like those ideas didn't just come from nowhere. I was aware of them building for some time. I was aware of that way of thinking. I knew what they thought. I saw it building a long time ago, just living where I live, knowing the people I've known. That said, it still caught me completely off guard how quickly it became mainstream and how cult-like it was. You know, it, it just it blew my mind. Just like the guy watching the Super Bowl and then developing his own yearly ritual for making the Seahawks win with his magical chicken, you know, in the same way that that just happened to him overnight, that's what happened to huge numbers of our population overnight. And I think there's more of that now than ever, too. It's not just that group. You know, you can see this with many, many people have started to become more superstitious. They've definitely started to see things, you know, more in like this good and evil dynamic, which I think we inevitably do, of course, but, uh, you know, more people have started to see things that way. And the, the dialogue these days reflects that. Like the political dialogue right now, I'm not even kidding, is, is literally between people who are saying you're a Nazi and the other side saying you're a pedophile. The political dialogue has crystallized into that. Yeah, there's still other stuff people talk about, but when you actually see what people are saying to each other, they both have this, they both have their own de definition of evil that they're fitting the enemy into, where, you know, Republicans right now, it's very common to hear like, oh, Democrats are grooming children, they're, they're pedophiles, they're audiophiles. And the, the, you know, Democrats turn around and say Republicans are, are all racists who want people to die in mass shootings. And these are just caricatures of human beings. But people are, are playing into the caricatures. 
So that's pretty wild. But it's interesting that like the dialogue is, is on that level now. Like there used to be a little bit of ad hominem. I mean, there's always ad hominem. But they would kind of dance around it. They were like, oh, I know we can't just rely on ad hominem. We have to also say other things along with the ad hominem. We have to make actual points to go along with the insults. Well, now we're at a level where it's just insults. The main points being made are like, you're a pedophile and you're a Nazi. And anything else beyond that is just extra credit. It's frosting on top, you know? But, uh, going back to, you know, you know, many different groups have started thinking this way. There's a lot of cult-like thinking. And what goes along with cult-like thinking is seeing things in terms of good and evil. And what I've always said is, you know, good and evil are real. Good and evil are absolutely real. But there's also a spectrum within that, too. It's like black, gray, and white all exist. And I think people get a little... <laughs> I don't think people think that one through very well. Like, they think that either everything is black and white, or it has to be all gray. And it's like, no, the reality of things is there is black and white, and then a bunch of gray, too. And they're all there. And some things are black or white, but other things are gray. It's not that everything's either on the gray spectrum or black and white, you know, but people kind of think it has to be one or the other. They're very black and white about that. Um, but we've reached a point where, like, the black and white is what we are dealing with here. Like, people are seeing things purely in terms of good and evil and friend and enemy. And with that, the different groups all have their own cult-like way of thinking. They're all participating in purity tests of their own making. And they have their own rituals and superstitions. And they've developed them quickly. They, they have built these things up very quickly, and that's what blows my mind. Back to what originally got me going on this thought. I always thought that was a process that would take eons. Oh, these things take generations to, to form. Tradition takes generations, and in some ways it does. But the new tradition can arise and just become mainstream, become popular like nothing. It could be as simple as watching a Super Bowl, you know, the microcosm. Because that's what that is. It's a microcosm, macrocosm thing. And this, in the same way that you can watch the Super Bowl and start thinking that you make magical chicken and the Seahawks win, something that isn't stupid to me. It's silly, but it's not stupid to me to think that way, because I think that way. But on a personal level, you can watch a game and think that you have to cook your magical chicken or your team, your favorite team will lose. That's the microcosm. The macrocosm is an entire society or an entire community can start thinking that way too, just as quickly. And the Seahawks are a good example of that too, because a lot of Seahawks fans started thinking that way. For the first couple years after that Seahawks Super Bowl win, Every Seahawks fan had developed this new set of traditions. It's like the ecstasy of that Super Bowl win, like, started us on this whole new path. It was like everything before that Super Bowl win was BC, and now we were living in AD. And, and 
the, the things that we were doing in year zero, that moment of ecstasy, we want to keep doing those now. So Seahawks fans as a whole kind of got into that way of thinking. But then we see it politically. We see it socially. We see summer 2020. Well, that's another macrocosm. Oh shit, a huge group of people took on new rituals, superstitions. They took on esoteric ways of thinking, because that's what it is. All of the, all this stuff that I'm talking about in this episode, it's esoteric thinking. It's magical thinking, as they say. But it's esoteric, because it wouldn't make sense to somebody who's just coming in off the street who doesn't know what you're talking about. And that's a good measuring stick. Like, that's what I'm talking about when I say going against your own grain. And by that meaning, looking at yourself a little more objectively than you would otherwise. One way that that's helpful is like you look at the things that you do. You look at the the institutions in your life. Like if, if your house is starting to turn into a hoarder house, a double H hoarder house, AKA a hell house, but if your house is starting to turn into that, imagine like being a friend or a stranger for that matter and walking into your house and just seeing it for what it is. Like, like in the same way that you, the same way that you look at a house when you go over to a friend's house or someone else's house, imagine that that's someone else coming into your house and see it through their eyes. And sometimes like I have a friend who, you know, occasionally comes over who will point things out and be like, oh, why do you have this here? And I'll, I don't have an answer. I'll say, I don't know. I have no idea. I, that's just kind of the institution. My, you know, that's that's the institution. <laughs> uh, but it's like you can do that with yourself too. Like these ideas you've developed, which might be you know superstitious. You might start have started thinking it's the only way. And why would you ever change that? But if you look at it objectively, like like imagine explaining something you believe to somebody who has no primer in what you're talking about. You know, yeah, you can't explain everything to, to everybody. It's like not everything. You know, there are some subjects where it's like you have to already know something about it to figure it out. But, you know, with most things, like if somebody a totally neutral party who has no experience in that thing that you do or that thing that you believe or you're into. Like, imagine trying to explain to them what that is. Like, like imagine, like, and if you don't have the words for it, if you can't explain it in a way that makes sense or that isn't humble or self-conscious, I think you should question what you're doing. Because there are definitely things that I do that have become institutions to me or that I'm superstitious about where if somebody were to ask me why I do it I couldn't give a coherent reason but I would know that I don't have a coherent reason and it's just what I would have to say is oh it's just intuition something inside of me says to do it that way and when I do it that way I feel like things fit into place better which I think is actually actually does make sense, but it's like the thing you're doing, you might not be able to explain why you've developed some sort of correlation or causation. Like if setting your phone down in the same place in your house when you're not using it feels like fitting something into place and that everything kind of goes smoother. 
you can't really say. I mean, it's not that if you set your phone down somewhere else, your house is going to explode. Maybe some people feel that way, but I wouldn't feel that way. It's just that something feels like it's in place. Something feels like it's going with the grain, going with the flow when I do that. But I also know it's silly. I also know it's random. And I could just as well have put my phone somewhere else and turned that into an institution and it would make no difference. So I'm self-conscious of it. I know that it seems silly from the outside. So when you see somebody who's not self-conscious, which is what we're seeing with these new cults that have developed, is that they're not very self-conscious. Like they don't realize how ridiculous, like how new they've taken these things on, how new all of this is, all this stuff that's near and dear to them. It's all very new to them. And what do you see with cults? Like when, when people are new to a cult, they're in a state of ecstasy, and then they start to see the reality of it. Every cult story is like this. They go in and they're blinded. There's a charismatic leader. Oh, it's they're in a state of ecstasy. And that state of ecstasy also attaches to that cult and is like, oh, okay, these things are connected. But then they spend enough time with that cult and they come down to earth and they're like, oh shit, there's a lot of really screwed up stuff going on here. There's something wrong here. But it takes a while. And so I think that's what we're seeing socially with these new cults that have developed in our society is they're still kind of in a state of ecstasy and they've taken on all of these new, very arbitrary superstitions, institutions, and rituals that they think are essential to what they're doing. But I wonder if in a few years they're going to start to become self-conscious of that, because right now they're not. Like anybody who's new to a cult, they're dogmatic. And we can get that way on a personal level, like going back to hoarders. When, uh, if you try to help a hoarder, like if you try to throw things out at a hoarder's house, they might flip out. They might scream, you know, it might be, it might feel like part of their body getting pulled apart because they now inhabit that. Just like they inhabit their house or their computer or their phone, they now inhabit that garbage. It's an extension of them. And so you're just like peeling a piece of skin off of them. And uh, even though it was arbitrary and they don't need garbage in their kitchen, that's kind of what it's like. If you were hanging out with that bartender, <laughs> who knew that he would become a, a central character here? But if you were hanging out with that bartender I was talking about, and you tried to suggest that he not make his magical chicken on game day, he probably wouldn't find it very funny. He might even be mad at you. Like if you were to be like, oh, hey, dude, you know, I think it's cool you make that magical chicken and... You know, you were cooking it on the, the day the Seahawks won the Super Bowl. But, you know, how about if we just do pizza? How about, if we, how, do, how about if we just do this? He would probably take that personally. He would probably feel offended. He'd be like, are you kidding me? You're telling me I shouldn't cook that chicken? We have to cook that chicken. It's like, give, you know, it's, you can see it with Catholicism, like fish and eating certain foods on certain days. Fasting during Ramadan. Like the idea of breaking with that isn't just breaking a social code, which is a big part of it, 
but it's also like if you believe in that stuff and let's say you eat during the day during Ramadan, it's going to feel like you're doing something far worse than just eating because the, the it disrupts that spiritual ecstasy that's going on. And uh, like I was saying, though, like that guy who cooks that chi- that chicken, if you tried to like tell him not to do that, he would probably be very defensive and offended. Because, hey, like, that's important to him, and he thinks that something special happens when he does it. And so when you try to do that to entire groups of people, they do the same thing. Which is why the conversation is so difficult to have. Which is why there's really no conversation, and people are just screaming Nazi and pedophile at each other across the room. It's because this isn't about dialogue or things that can be... Because the thing is, in order to have a real debate or discussion, both people have to be self-conscious. And that's one of the big components that's missing from these new ways of thinking that are popular right now. They're not self-conscious at all. And when you're not self-conscious, you're just going through the motions of these rituals and new traditions and insular ideas. And you really don't want anything else. You really don't want to let anything else in. And what self-consciousness does is it lets other people in. It lets other ideas in. It relaxes you. Even though we don't like that feeling, it can feel sometimes when you're self-conscious, it's like seeing yourself under a very unflattering light. But there's also something like where it's like a tension is released when you do that. And you see yourself a little more objectively, and maybe harshly, but sometimes you need that. But that's why we can't have any conversations. It's because, you know, there's this cult-like mentality that's developed surrounding just about everything. And it can develop overnight. And it's not very self-conscious, so it's just these people calling each other names while they go through these these new traditions and rituals that were developed rather arbitrarily. They became institutions very arbitrarily. But all it took was just a little repetition and people started thinking that that was what they were supposed to be doing. And that they have to do that. That that is the road to that ecstasy they experienced. Pretty wild. Children can run free.